being such an awesome, amazing God. And we just pray for Phil as he gives us your word this morning that you'll be with him in your name. Amen. Amen. Oh, kia ora, everyone. It's good to be here and to share God's word with you. Last week, uh, we talked a little bit about the wars in the Bible that um, God commanded, and we tried to understand something of them. And so uh, just with that in mind, I'd like to recommend two books that I found really helpful in, in trying to understand that. There's uh, one by Paul Copan called Is God a Moral Monster? And there's one by Chris Wright called The God I Don't Understand, Reflections on Tough Questions of Faith. So um, if you want to find out more about um, these kinds of issues, then I highly recommend you have a look at these books. They're really good. Well, today we're in the book of Chronicles. But um, first of all, I just wanted to have a little think about story, because Chronicles is history. Chronicles is a, uh, is, um, a history of Israel that we're looking at today. So... Um, we need to think about the importance of history. And um, last year in 2012, I, I read this article by the BBC on the Pentagon's new weapon that they are developing. <laughs> and this weapon is not an actual gun. It's a story. It's a narrative. Then they're, they're researching people's minds to try to understand why do people do violent things and what's why do they connect to big stories that stretch across, his, across history? And how does that motivate them to act in a certain way? And so they, they, they weren't thinking of brainwashing, but they're thinking of creating a history of events so that people could listen to this history of events and go, oh, I think America is a good nation. I won't do any acts of terrorism. So this, this kind of thing is the thing that they were researching and it goes to show that um, story is a very powerful thing, and it's something that everyone wants to be part of. Very few people would actually say, oh, my existence is meaningless and I'm just here. <laughs> Even most of the um, atheists that I'm aware of would certainly say, history is going somewhere and we are the pinnacle, we are the, the height of evolution. And they would look at things like, the life straw, which is a straw with a water filter in it. You can take it to the dirtiest pond you can imagine, and you can drink through the store and drink clean water. So when my atheist friends would think of these kind of inventions, they would say, see, here's a good invention, or something good that somebody did, so humanity must be getting better. And this is the kind of story that they project that they want people to buy into and be part of. Well... Today, um, we're going to have a look at God's story, the way that God sees history and unfolding, and, the, and something that he definitely wants all of us to be part of. And this story, this history, is our history. It's the history of God providing a deliverer, someone who will restore people's relationship with him, someone who, um, who would help us to um, get rid of the wrong things in our lives and become more like our God. And of course, that deliverer is Jesus Christ. And so the story of how that deliverer came about is um, part of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we can also see who God is, how he acted, what he's like when people uh, do various things, and um, how he uh, helped Israel. So let's just um, recap that story very briefly now. 
Remember that God created everything good, but when Adam and Eve sinned, um, then it broke the relationship with God and the relationship with each other. The ground was cursed and the whole of creation was frustrated because of sin. But God promised that one day a descendant of Eve would um, crush Satan's head and would uh, bring victory. So of all Adam's kids, God chose Seth's line, and the descendant of, of Seth, Seth was Abraham. And Abraham's descendants, through um, Isaac and Jacob, became the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel had a special relationship with God so that they could lead the other nations into a relationship with God. This was God's intent. And you can read about this in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but God rescued them. He took them to the promised land of Canaan, which is renamed Israel. And the second king of Israel was called David, and he lived about a thousand years before Jesus did. And God made David some amazing promises. David wanted to build a temple to honor the Lord. But the Lord said, actually, David, you're not good enough to build me a temple. You've shed too much blood. We need a better king to build a temple than you. And so God said, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. One of your descendants, David, will rule on your throne forever. Well, David did have a son. His son was called Solomon, and Solomon did build a temple, but it wasn't the temple God promised. See, Solomon, he didn't obey God, and um, he failed. And so, and eventually the temple that he built was burnt to the ground when they were overtaken by enemies. But God did make some promises to Solomon as well. God promised Solomon that when Israel disobeyed God and they were under God's judgment, if they repented, if they turned around and said, hey God, I'm so sorry, I want to do what's right now, then God said he would hear and heal their land and he would not bring that judgment on them. And God promised Solomon that um, if Israel obeyed, then he would bless them. And these um, promises of blessing and curses are exactly what God said already in Deuteronomy chapter 27 to 29, and you can read about that there. So these things that we're reading are like the outworking of God's promises through history, and we can tell what our God is like because of that. So um, today we're in the book of Chronicles, and Chronicles was written to the nation of um, Judah, and the writer of Chronicles focuses on Judah and the priesthood. And the reason um, the writer does that is because the writer has got God's promise to David in mind. So every king that you read about will be evaluated whether they obeyed God like David or whether they didn't obey God like David. And the reason is that the writer is saying, we need to keep God's promise to David in mind. We're looking for this king. Where is this king? And um, God was indeed faithful to his promises. Every time they disobeyed him, the Lord brought judgment and disaster on them when they were unfaithful to him. And every time the, they, they turned back to him and said sorry, the Lord forgave them and brought them <clears throat> peace. However, no king was found who matched the, God's description of a descendant of David who sit on the throne and rule forever. 
No king was found. They all eventually failed. And by the end of the book of Chronicles, you can see that God was right and just to let other nations invade them and take them prisoner. So um, we're going to look at King Hezekiah, but first of all, just a reminder about King Ahaz so we can see God's faithfulness to these promises. King Ahaz, he was a terrible king. He stopped people worshipping God. He, he shut the temple down. He encouraged child sacrifice. He encouraged prostitution and worship of idols. And so, no surprise, during Ahaz's time, other countries, Aram, um, Israel, Edom, other foreign countries invaded them. And um, that was God being faithful to his promise. But King Hezekiah, who we're looking at today, in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 29 to 32, he was a king who was good. He, he obeyed God like David his father. And I'll just, um, just read that to you. Second uh, Chronicles 29 and verse 1. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. And what did he do? Well, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. And so what, I, what uh, Hezekiah did is he got rid of all the idols in the temple that King Ahaz, his father, had put there. He opened the temple up, he restarted the worship of the Lord, and he invited all of Judah and Israel, both halves of the country, to come and celebrate the Passover. The, that's the celebration of God delivering Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and making them his own people. And so... Um, Hezekiah, he, he did all these amazing things. And then a king of Assyria came to invade Judah, came to take over Jerusalem. But God was faithful to his promises and he delivered them and that invasion didn't take place. And then after that, King Hezekiah, like all the other kings, he failed. He became proud and he became selfish and God's judgment was on him. But then after that, he repented, which was good, and um, God's judgment didn't come for another generation. So those, those are the events of King Hezekiah's reign. And we're going to look at them from two different perspectives. We can see that in Hezekiah's reign, people's relationship was restored to God. And this is something that our world needs, and this is something that everybody needs who um, is not following the Lord. And so it's important that we look at um, restoring our relationship to God. This is what the temple and the priesthood did. They kept people in close relationship to God. And so we're going to look at um, how could their relationship to God be restored? How could they get from such awful idolatry into such a good relationship with God? And then we're going to look at, at um, so that's why, then we're going to look at how. So why and how their relationship to God could be restored. So the result of Hezekiah's obedience definitely was that many people restored their relationship to God. In fact, people came from all over Israel 
just to come back to the temple to say sorry to God and to give thanks to him. And that's awesome, and that's definitely what um, our world needs today, and that's what we need today. So um, I would like to just say that um, after they, they cleared out the temple and they, they cleared all of that, and then they gave their um, offerings to God to, to say sorry, to atone for their sin. And then after that, they went throughout the whole country and got rid of all the idols. <laughs> so that was really awesome. Well, why could they do that? Why could they turn back to God with such certainty? You know, if you meet someone whom you know has been in prison for murder, then how, how comfortable would you be um, bringing them into your house? How comfortable would you be in making them, letting them be friends with your family? It's hard to do that kind of restoration. We might think, hmm, should I let them? Should I not? <laughs> These people have been doing um, terrible things in, to each other and in God's eyes, and yet they could turn back to God and ask for forgiveness. How come? Well, the basis for the restoration is the character and the covenant of God. So the co- a covenant is a promise. And when God makes his promises, he really means them. In fact, a covenant is a promise so official and so serious, it really means I should be chopped in half if I don't keep this promise. Right? So God had promised um, that he would forgive when people turned back to him. And as you look through Israel's history, you can see every time people turned back to him, he forgave them. And so um, because God had done that so many times in the past, then they could turn to God and say sorry. And definitely Hezekiah led them in that. And we can see that that, um, God was faithful to his promises. He forgave when they repented. He delivered them from invasion. And there was peace in their country. Their country was doing well. There was um, no war, no famine. People were um, happy and healthy and worshipping God. And this is the blessing that God promised when his people would follow him. And so we need to take note, first of all, that the reason that we are told about Hezekiah all those years ago is so that we can see how amazing our God is. We serve the same God today. Our God is so magnificent. He is still faithful. He still always never fails to keep his promises. And he's there ready for you to ask him for forgiveness. God never fails to be just and fair, and he always judges wrong, as he showed many times in that history, and we look forward to the day when Jesus will come back and judge wrong wrong once and for all. God is forgiving. He is gracious when people repent and pray, and he is holy because there's no way that we can worship the Lord without purity, and we'll look at that in depth more later. So um, we we can say for a start that Our Lord is still the same. Hezekiah was just the king of Judah, but he led people to restore their relationship with God. But Jesus is the king of kings, the descendant of David that God promised. Jesus is king over all, and Jesus is calling every one of us to obedience and repentance and celebration. And um, in the book of Chronicles, there are five celebrations, five worship festivals, times when people turned back to God and said sorry 
And then they celebrated and gave thanks to God. And, the, and Hezekiah led two of those, one for the priests and one for the people. And um, we know, you know, that when we say sorry to God and ask him to forgive us, there is the joy of forgiveness and celebration and the joy of, of following him. And so when we read of Hezekiah, we can't help but think of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's read, um, read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 30, verses 13 to 17. And many people came together in Jerusalem to the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the brook Kidron. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the fourteenth day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed, so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They took their accustomed pots according to the law of Moses, the man of, of God. The priests threw the blood that they received into the hand, from the hands of the Levites, for there were many in the assembly, the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. Now, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke the high places and altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his possession. And so we, we've read that they had this amazing worship, worship festival. But did you notice something different? Did you notice that some of the Levites, whose job it was to give the sacrifices, couldn't give them? Because they weren't holy. They weren't clean. They hadn't purified themselves or dedicated themselves to God in order to do that. And so even though they had this massive celebration, some of the people had to take a second step, a second step back and go, oh, right, I need to actually dedicate myself to God. And this brings us to um, our next point, that the worship of the worship of God requires holiness. So the reason they could restore their relationship with God was on the basis of God's character. But the way that they restored their relationship with God was to become holy, to set themselves apart. And what does that mean? Well, you could look at the opposite. You could say it would be wrong and inappropriate for someone to turn up to a wedding in mud, right? Please don't turn up to my wedding in August in mud. <laughs> um, because it's just, it's really inappropriate. Look at him, he's, he's dirty, he's filthy, and to be in such a clean setting with all those people, it's inappropriate. And in a much deeper way, it's so far wrong for us to have uh, inappropriate things in our lives or be worshipping other things than God and yet try to worship God himself. And um, for them, God would not accept their worship unless they got rid of the idols out of that temple first. And we can see the same thing happening in 1 Corinthians 11, which we um, covered some months ago, when the people were celebrating the Lord's Supper, but they were celebrating it in the wrong way. They weren't pure, they weren't holy. Some of them were sick, some of them had died, and um, that church was under God's judgment. God must have us as holy if, we, if he's going to accept our worship. And this was definitely the case in this place, 
They got rid of the idols. They gave the sacrifices. They said, please forgive us. And then they were able to worship the Lord and give thanks. And so definitely for the first readers of um, Chronicles, people who had been in exile, had been forced to live in another country, but then were allowed to return back to their own country, Israel. When they got there, they had to choose again, will we follow the Lord or will we follow idols? And who will lead us in following the Lord? Who will lead us in following the Lord? And this is a decision that they had to make. And so uh, we must all also make that decision. So um, just as Hezekiah led the nation in, re- in restoration and repentance, so today Jesus Christ wants to lead us in restoration and repentance, and we must follow him. But how could people be holy? Well, we read that they gave sacrifices. They gave sacrifices. Hezekiah commanded that sacrifices be made, and it was the sacrifices that restored people's relationship with God. So um, there are lots of sacrifices that they gave, but two stand out. There's the sacrifice for sin. There's the sacrifice for atonement. It's mentioned twice in the text, so the author's kind of highlighting it. Guess what? They gave sacrifices for their sin. This is really important. And there's no way that we can restore our relationship with God except on the basis of sacrifice. And so when we look at this passage, we say, oh, they restored their relationship with God by killing those animals who died um, instead of the sinners dying. And we know that Jesus has done the very same thing for us. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who has, who, who has laid down his life for us. And so um, this, is, this is very important to note that the way they restored their relationship with God was through sacrifice. And if we want to come back to God, we can only do that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. And that's really important. It's not just saying sorry. It's acknowledging Jesus' sacrifice for us. So um, being holy always results in worship. And I'm sure you know the joy of following God in holiness. You know, um, I have a Facebook account, and sometimes I get random Facebook requests from people, and I'm like, do I know that person? So sometimes I'll, cl- I'll just click on the, the the link and see that person's profile to see if I know them. But sometimes when you click on that profile, up comes a dirty picture and you're like, whoa. And at that moment, I have a choice. Do I click on the picture and enlarge it or do I click the X button and get away? And it's my joy to click the X button and get away. It always has been. And it's, it's wonderful to be able to laugh in the face of temptation and say, I serve a different God. I serve a better God, one who will not enslave me in lust. And it's, it's amazing and awesome to have such a powerful God who enables us to do these things. And um, it's a joy, being, it's an immense joy to just walk with Susanna in purity and enjoy the friendship and relationship God's way. And it's such a joy to follow God. And this is the joy that these people had in, in their time. They repented, they came back to God, and in walking, by walking in holiness to God, they, with God, they were just celebrating and celebrating and celebrating, giving thanks to Him. And isn't this the very same reason that um, we come to church on Sunday morning? We're celebrating Jesus' sacrifice for us. We're giving thanks to Him. 
And as we come, we come in purity and we come asking for forgiveness and we come to give thanks to him for what he's done. It's a joy to worship our God because of his sacrifice. And this is the joy that they had also in their time. Okay, so um, for the readers then, the readers then, the first readers were returned exiles, and Chronicles reminded them that our God is still the same God, that he would still remain faithful to his promises, and that he would bring the king that he promised. And um, as I said, Hezekiah led two of the five worship festivals recorded in Chronicles, and just as Hezekiah led those times of worship, so the returned exiles. So the returned exiles needed to find a leader who would lead them in worship and, and purity and repentance. Um, so I'll just skip a few slides and go to the one titled Jesus Is. So um, for them, Hezekiah was an amazing king who led them in purity. But for us, Jesus is the king greater than David. Jesus is the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. Jesus is the one who makes us pure and holy. And Jesus is the great high priest who is the bridge between us and God. Hezekiah, he, he failed, he grew proud, but Jesus never did anything wrong. Hezekiah repented and averted God's wrath for one generation. But Jesus, he died on the cross and, and averted God's wrath forever for those who will trust in him. And Hezekiah was honoured when he died. He was buried in the tombs of the kings. Jesus was honoured when he was raised to life and seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is that greater king. And um, I'll, because of time, I'll just skip a few slides and just go to a so what. So what, what would this mean for us today? Well, we can be encouraged and worship God because of who God is. And if you have fallen, know that you have hope of restoration of Jesus' sacrifice and his covenant with us. And if you're doing well, rejoice and take warning that we must continue without pride because Hezekiah became proud and that's how he sinned. Because remember that the Lord is holy. And we must know that today our world is crying out for good leaders. Any time you ask anyone about politics, you can guarantee they will complain about the leaders because they're not doing uh, the best job that can be done. <laughs> well, Jesus is the perfect leader. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the creator who wants to restore this fallen world. And so we must live in a restored relationship with God so that the world will know that he is Lord. We must. So having looked then at the primary message of these chapters in Second Chronicles, that, that our relationship with God can be restored on the basis of God's character by sanctification and through sacrifice, that's the main message. But there's a contemporary question, a modern question that I want to look at now, and it bothers a lot of people. And so I wanted to just take the time to address this question, even though it's not the main lesson of the text, um, because I think it will help us in relating to um, people who ask us questions about these kind of things, and it will help us understand our God better. So um, this is the question relating to the prosperity gospel. 
And you might think, well, what's the prosperity gospel? <laughs> well, basically, it's when people say, if you want to come to God, you have to give lots of money, and in return, God will make you rich. Or, if you want to, to be restored to God, then you have to have enough faith, and God will do whatever you ask of him. There are a lot of um, preachers on TV who give this kind of message, and they're and they get this kind of message from Old Testament passages like the one we're looking at with Hezekiah today. And um, we can read this. If you go to the next slide, please. Um, we read this in Second Chronicles. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses, also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. Hezekiah obeyed God, and God made him rich. So this is the kind of passage that these, some of these preachers look at and say, see, if you come to God, he's supposed to make you rich. Didn't he do it for Hezekiah? Right? But... um. We, we need to note that it is true that in the Old Testament, God's blessing to Israel did involve riches and material prosperity. And it's true that God cares about every single part of our lives, not just the spiritual, but also the physical, the financial, the social, um, everything. And God has promised to supply our needs. But this is different to what those preachers on TV are saying today. And it's different because these blessings that God gave Israel were not in a spiritual shop waiting to be claimed by payments of faith or prayers or money. These blessings were the result of a genuine repentance and relationship with God. And when you think of 99% of these chapters on Hezekiah talking about how they restored their relationship with God, and then these few verses about how God um, prospered Hezekiah and made him rich as a result. You can see that the focus of the Bible is definitely on the restoration and not on the riches. But that doesn't mean that the riches weren't there. It's still something that God did. Notice that these blessings were for the whole nation. The king of Israel was made rich, and he, with those riches, he built up a city, and, he, and the nation of Israel prospered. It wasn't for an individual. It was for the whole nation of Israel. So this is different to what those televangelists are saying. And definitely in returning to the Lord and getting rid of the idols in the land, they got also got rid of the greed. But today, if you hear somebody say, give lots of money to God and he'll give you lots back, it's very easy for greedy people to take hold of those fake promises and, and try to listen to them. So um, this is very different, very different. But um, we can see this, too, in the text if we read this verse. In everything that Hezekiah undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, Hezekiah sought his God and worked wholeheartedly, and that's why he prospered. It's definitely wrong for those televangelists to say, pay God money and he'll pay you back. But... <laughs> And we do need to note that they have hooked on to something interesting, that God's ideal is plenty. 
God's ideal is plenty and prosperity for his people, as is seen in God's ideal, the Garden of Eden and in heaven. We're told in Genesis chapter 2 that the Garden of Eden had not only food and water, but it also had gold and precious stones. And in the millennial kingdom and in the new creation, there will be prosperity because there will be no hunger. And the city of the king is pictured as being made of gems and gold and pearl, and there is no crying and no dying and no curse and no want and no need in heaven. So our God is definitely a generous God who provides and who provides abundantly. He's not someone who only cares about spiritual things. He cares about every single area of life, the physical, financial, everything. Prospering God's people is an objective of God that only fully comes with the fullness of his reign and a fully restored relationship with him. So in looking forward to that then and in line with God's character, he commands that his people be generous. God cares very much about rich people. That's why he's always commanding rich people to give to poor people because God doesn't want people to be starving. God wants everybody to be provided for. And just as God provided everything in the Garden of Eden, and if you read um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, you can see that just as one day all God's people will be lifted out of poverty and be in full relationship with God, so Israel and the church are to look after the poor and assist them in restoring their relationship with God and helping them out of poverty. We are to reflect the God we serve. This is why the rich are always commanded to care for the poor and to put our hope in God rather than wealth. And that's 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. We're to put our hope in God so that we won't fall into idolatry, but we'll be happy to use our wealth to help the poor and to help others. So God wants us to look after the poor, not just because he cares, but also because he's our king and we're to reflect him. And we can do this as an expression of our faith. And you can see in James, James says... What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So it's not only imperative that we help the poor, but it's also imperative that we help the poor with their relationship with God. Imagine if we could make all the poor in Hamilton rich. Imagine if we could give them all over $25,000 a year and a good car and food on the table and a hobby and some change in their pocket. Imagine if the poor were as rich as us. Then the poor would only take on the same problems that the rich people have. Rich people still struggle with apathy and immorality and greed and uh, violence and broken relationships and pride. Rich people struggle with these things as well as poor people. If we only gave money, then the poor people would just become rich people with the same problems. But, um, so that's why our goal is not just to make the poor rich, not just to lift them out of poverty, but also to make them like Christ, to make the rich and poor like Christ. So we need to help people to be like Christ without neglecting their physical needs. Without neglecting their physical needs. And it's worth noting 
that not everybody who follows God closely becomes prosperous. You know, you can't get more faithful or closer to God than Jesus was. Jesus was God himself, and yet he was poor. But notice what Jesus did. He, he died on the cross so that when he returns, there will be no poverty. There will be plenty for his people, and he will restore everyone and everything um, in righteousness and holiness. This is God's agenda, and so it must be ours too. God is working to bring people to himself, and he's, bring, and he's also working to provide for his people. And one way he provides for, his, for people is through, is through us, through church, um, as we obey him and follow his example while we're on earth. So then, God brought peace and prosperity to Israel because Hezekiah led them in repentance and a restored relationship with God. Jesus is bringing about the kingdom of God and calls everyone to repentance and a stored relationship with him through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And in this way, when we look at Hezekiah's prosperity in that day, since Hezekiah is a type of Christ, we can say that that's like a type of heaven, a, a, a something pointing forward to heaven that helps us look forward to heaven when God will come and there will be no thirst, no hunger, no dying, no crying, and no pain. And this is... This is a picture of who God is. So Jesus is leading on. The question is, will we follow? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your amazing character. Thank you, Lord, that you've shown us time and time and time again through the way that you dealt with Israel, how faithful and good you are. Lord, you showed your faithfulness not just over a short time, but over thousands of years, um, as you sought to um, help people turn back to you. Lord, thank you that you are the one who makes us holy. Thank you that it's through your sacrifice on the cross that we, that we can be accepted by you. Thank you that you are helping us to live holy, to live in ways that are pleasing to you, ways that are, are appropriate for you. And Lord, thank you so much that you, you gave us this passage in Chronicles to help, help remind us of your vision of plenty and no suffering for, for everyone. Lord, thank you that you suffered and died on the cross so that you could end suffering and so that you could bring about your awesome and glorious reign. Lord, um, we do want to thank you and praise you for all that you are. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to live in light of your coming. Lord, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.